1: Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Sterabin, and welcome to America and Beyond on the New Books Network. I'm pleased to have today as my guests uh, authors John B. Judas and Roy Teixeira, authors of Where Have All the Democrats Gone? John serves as the editor at large at Talking Points Memo. Previously, he worked as a senior writer at the National Journal and a senior editor at the New Republic. His past books include The Emerging Democratic Majority, which he co wrote with Roy. Uh, as well as The Populist Explosion and Paradox of American Democracy. Roy's a contributing columnist of the Washington Post. He's co-founder and politics editor of the Liberal Patriot Newsletter and a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thanks for having us.
2: Glad to have you. And you need to also plug my book on on uh, Israel and Truman, Genesis. I'm, I'm trying to get the uh, sales these days. Right, it's... Uh,
0: uh... Of pertinence,
2: of pertinence. I see.
0: Well, we
1: we will uh, uh, we can possibly address that uh, later. But in the first instance, uh, so right, this emerging uh, democratic uh, majority uh, book was published in two thousand and two. So here we are now, twenty one years later. There's a thread. Uh, as your book shows, that connects that book to where have all the Democrats gone? How would you describe that that thread? Go ahead, Rui, you
0: do. Yeah, okay. The, uh, well, the thread that connects them, I suppose, is trying to understand how American politics was and is changing. So at the time we wrote Emerging Democratic Majority, we were looking at the way some of the tectonic plates of American politics were shifting um, increasing role of non-white voters, of course, but also the rise of professionals or influence in the Democratic Party, the rise of cosmopolitan metropolitan areas, we called ideopolises. The role of women. Um, there were a number of changes taking place that all seemed to be shifting politics in a direction that was congenial for the Democrats, who allowed them to form, you know, a sort of successor majority coalition to the New Deal coalition, uh, if they played their cards right uh and uh, it all depended on them continuing to be a party that could potentially appeal to not only all the different prongs of this or parts of this emerging coalition but also importantly a very significant minor at least minority share of what used to be one of their big strengths which is a white working class uh particularly and you know which particularly looms important in a lot of key states that the democrats had controlled for a number of years and were key to their coalition so what happened over time, and why we wrote the, this book, is try to understand. Well, what happened to that, co you know majority coalition that seemed to be coming into being, particularly with Obama's two thousand and eight victory. Uh, how did we get to where we are today? Yeah, which yeah, is kind of unstable coalition between some, the parties.
1: Right. In the book, you explicitly say there's a section. You know what what we got wrong.
0: Right. Right. So one thing, you know, I mean, there's a number of things we say in there, but. In terms of raw political impact, I think the key thing we got wrong is we didn't really anticipate the extent to which white working class voters could, could continue to be even more alienated from the Democratic Party. that in fact, they would not make, you know much of an effort to keep these voters that after 2012, they'd decide with Obama's second victory, that uh, the future lies with the rising American electorate. And we just have to double and triple down on that. We don't need to worry about these voters who are drifting away from us who are white and are working class because they're all closet racists and reactionaries anyway. So that was <clears throat> a key part of what happened. And I think linked to that, we did not anticipate how shadow party dominated by these professionals would become and the ways in which they would pick up on a lot of these social issues and, and push the Democrats in a direction that, uh was was very liberal if not radical in a lot of these issues and that would come to dominate the party and its associated institutions
1: we'll talk more about
2: the the shadow I think, party. i the think another way to put it paul is that the i mean as i remember the past i used to tell Rui, well we're going to lose west virginia but uh, we're going to win virginia because of the northern virginia suburbs and uh, in fact You know, I don't think the Democrats will win West Virginia back because of uh, climate change policies. But I don't think we understood the degree to which we would lose as Democrats, um, small towns, mid-sized towns that depended upon mining and manufacturing. I mean, I think that that's, again, if you can look at the problem either in terms of class or region and. Uh, The Democrats have just gotten killed in those areas. And that has made up to some extent uh, for the advances they've made in these uh, big metro areas with finance and education and high tech and all that stuff. So that's the I think that's the other part of the uh, emerging Democratic majority that we that we missed, that we didn't.
0: Right. And the first part of the book, Paul, The Great Divide, is all about that, those developments of region and class, which bifurcated the Democrats' coalition and, and essentially canceled out their increasing strength in sort of ideopolises and states that, in which those ideopolises loom large.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and not to make this too much of a, a love fest, because I mean, I did enjoy the book and recommend it to everyone, but I find it refreshing uh, that you are willing to go back and say, "Yeah, this is what we got wrong," because that—that that is not, you know, your everyday event in sort of, you know, among analysts uh, of of politics or, or of any other uh, uh, discipline or, or field. So I think that's a that's a healthy thing, and I wish more people would would do that. Um, I want to zoom in on this concept or construct of the shadow party. John, I thought I detected a note of of John Judas in the identification of the Shadow Party as a kind of vanguard. Uh, perhaps I'm wrong there, but I associate that term all oh, somehow Lenin or or somebody Trotsky, somebody like that. Always seems to come into focus, a vanguard, it almost sounds like a very European. And I, I'm an ex-commie
0: tr- too, so it's I'll, both I'll, of I'll, us. Well, all right, I'm talking to two ex-commies.
1: <laughs> I'm not an ex-commie, but I have spent all too much time reading about vanguards in the context of the Russian Revolution and so forth. Uh, but I think that that construct is, is, is certainly going to get attention from readers of your book, and they may be in some way unfamiliar with it.
2: Yeah, well, y- yes. I-, I just a note here that Rui and I met, uh, you know, like fifty years ago, and he was wearing a Mao cap at the time. So <laughs> goodness,
0: <laughs> power to the Vanguard. people,
2: baby. Yeah, Vanguard is not just my. Uh... <laughs> oh,
0: okay,
1: I thought it. Well, I know you, John, better than I know Rui, so that yeah. maybe is my uh,
2: my dad. So um, I I guess what we were thinking of is something like this that. If you analyze parties uh, prior to, let's say, the late 1990s, uh, you really just can make this distinction between a governing coalition that, uh, that in the parties, both parties, was uh, a lot of which was based in the Eastern Seaboard in all these uh, uh, institutions, including the AFL CIO, not just business, but a ma- major business uh uh lobbies uh council on foreign relations groups like that and that's that constitutes the kind of governing coalition from which the parties draw their um secretaries of this and assistant secretaries of that and from which a lot of their po- policies uh uh emanate uh bill clinton you know people were saying he was talking about you know Putting people first and then all that stuff, and then Bob Rubin ends up as the central character of Goldman Sachs and his administration. Yes, Goldman Sachs, the Mm -hmm. governing council, and then you have a a big electoral coalition that uh, the party tries to appeal to, so that you know you can sort of split it that way. And that's the kind of thing that Bill Domhoff used to talk about in "Who Rules America." And let's see, right? Bill's talked about. Now, I think that that really starts to change in the late 1990s. And a lot of it's the influence in, of uh, the Internet and uh, the way in which uh, information is now dispersed uh, uh, throughout the country. Uh, the, the, the political discussion itself changes. And um, these, um, uh, again, activist groups, uh, foundations, uh, organizations lobbies uh come to have an inordinate uh influence on the on public discussion it's no longer confined to you know like a handful of groups in the eastern seaboard and and within the democratic party um the dominant groups uh become uh come out of this uh Professionals within the uh, high tech, uh, higher education, metro areas, and college towns. And um, they put forward a, a politics that, especially on social issues, uh, is more radical than most of the country. Where you know the example I always use is that uh, how how many people outside a few zip codes can identify what all the initials in L B G T Q I A plus mean? They can't, or who would use a term like Latinx? But this comes the common vocabulary itself of this kind of shadow party within the Democrats. So in an election. Uh, in 2020, very few Democrats uh for federal office actually use a term like defund the police. I mean they wouldn't do it because they don't agree with it uh, but yet the party itself becomes linked to that through this the shadow party right and, the you,
1: and in your introduction of this um of this construct, this concept as the vanguard of the college educated professionals in the post-industrial metro centers, you also refer to an aura of moral uh, censoriousness, of neo-Puritan religiosity that surrounds much of the Democrats' shadow party groups. And in the illustrative chapters that follow later in the book, having to do in particular with uh, race and and radicalism uh, and climate change, uh, you continue on that. Theme. I thought that was interesting uh for example climate you write of a millenarian quasi-religious uh stance with regard to race you quote John uh McWhorter, his f- phrase um an anti-racist fervor among young whites quote the new birth of a new religion so I felt like um I actually wanted to to, to, to hear more on that but but maybe now, I mean, where does a quasi-religious Puritan impulse uh, come from? I mean, yeah, I'm kind more, of an...
2: That is more my shtick. The Van All right, that's that's a, but, but, but okay. They're, they're, but just, to,
1: just to clear up. my throat, just yeah, a little yeah. bit on it,
2: I'm. Hey, I, I wonder if your listeners have read the uh, what is it, David Hackett Fisher's uh, Albion Seed? That's the classic. I, I
0: think that it's. We can guarantee almost none of them have read it. It's an oh, extremely it's like, long book. Yeah. We should, we should never long.
1: never assume anything. Uh, but but they are familiar with this the, the Puritan part, I think anyway yes. of this, and well, I what... think.
2: What he uh, what he tries to show is how the how these different ideological religious strains come out of different parts of the emigres from England, Scotland and Ireland. And the Puritan strain is very important in New England, and it becomes a kind of, uh, again, a kind of ideology of a certain part of the, nor- the northern part of the country in the United States. And it pops up in all these places. When you have a left wing, uh, left wingers, for instance, uh, they talk about uh, this was during the 60s. Um, uh, they see. Conceive themselves as a kind of chosen, as an elite, uh, as the elect, again, a concept that comes out of uh, Puritanism, Congregationalism, um, and a, again, the sense of mission. So that's very important, uh, again, to a certain ideological strain in America, and it's often contrasted to the Scots-Irish and the jacksonians and the southern politics which is v- very different but that uh, that again that puritan strain i think runs through a lot of the uh, his- history of um, the the left and you know particularly the left a- even after the uh, a- after the 30s and 40s and 50s when it becomes in the 60s again a kind of rooted in college towns and big metro centers uh, in the north you get this kind of uh, uh, p- political outlook. And, you know, R- Rui can talk about this. It's, you know, it's so clear in the apocalyptic strain in uh, climate change.
0: Oh. Yeah, yeah, oh, the right, right. So, yeah. I mean, we, we stress in the book, and, and I think most people would agree with this. I mean, climate change is a real problem. Racism is a real problem. Discrimination against trans people is a real problem. But you can be concerned about these problems and want to do something about it, and not necessarily embrace you know for example in terms of climate the need to ban electric vehicles and go to net zero by 2030 or 40 or 50 and you know, a sort of an impractical approach to getting uh, industrial societies completely off of fossil fuels running wind and solar that's that's a, that's a that's almost millenarian commitment but what you have with something like that is you know it's not enough to be uh you know concerned about climate change and want to do something about it if you don't embrace the full panoply of this sort of apocalyptic approach and policy commitments, you're on the wrong side. You're you're not part of the elect. Uh, You're you're sort of cast out. And I think you see the same thing with uh, the racism issue. People can to say you're opposed to racism is not enough. I mean, you have to embrace a whole vector of things around, you know, white privilege, around microaggressions, around how racism imbricates every aspect of American life. How we're actually a white supremacist society, and so on. And if you don't embrace that, then again, you're not part of the elect, and so on down the line. I mean, you basically take real problems, real concerns people have, uh, and then you sort of transmute them into this catechism that everyone has to embrace. And if they do not, yeah, uh, they're not part of the elect. Well, is and it is a there a counterpart? Language, here, is there
1: a counterpart here to the uh, what's happening sort of on the Republican conservatives? I mean, I just what an interesting. Piece The other day is an essay by Damon Linker that ran in the New York Times about this trend towards sort of catastrophism, something like that among conservative uh, thinkers of a certain kind. But again, this notion of, uh, you know, the apocalypse and so forth. I mean, is this, a, you know, is this part of the polarization where the Democrats have essentially their own brand? Or strain or <laughs> the, the friend
0: of, of apocalypse. Well, right, yeah. you know it,
1: it occurs. It seems like it's very much part of our conversation. But again, I think it's important to note that it's it doesn't seem to be gripping like the majority of the of the population. but but among so-called thinkers or people who focus on this sort of
2: thing, it does seem to be pretty um resonant, yeah, you well, you know the part of the uh, Puritan uh, idea was again the book. The Bible as as a as a key guide to life, and I remember uh, being in Arizona at a a rally that uh, the religious right people were calling on behalf of McCain at that time, and and Palin was speaking, and the Tea Party people were were passing out. little constitutions in the same way as people on the left used to have, p- pass out the Mao's Red Book. It was the same thing. I mean, the Constitution, again, becomes reified into this special kind of book that if you really understand it, uh, it will be a guide to life. And You know, this guy, Michael Johnson, comes out of yeah, since, was just some of that him. same mm-hmm. Where there's a guy, I think his name is Brady. I used to follow all this stuff and go to the conventions. Uh, has this his, uh, theory of American history and of the Revolution and of the Constitution that it really does and uh, uh, it really does merge church and state after all. And, and so anyway, a spe- the book a special interpretation, all that again uh, comes out of the uh, uh, religious past, right?
1: And I think I also was thinking as I read about the Shadow Party and how you it, it kind of works as a as a construct when you're talking about race uh religion, I- immigration, also important in climate. But then with respect to, for example, to abortion and abortion rights, it seems like there's a harmony there between this this shadow party uh, <clears throat> conviction and where the party, more broadly speaking is, right?
0: Well, there's a harmony, uh, you know, in the current political context, right? Because when the Dobbs decision comes down and the pro-life forces within the Republican Party are unleashed to try to push things, you know, in states that are, you know, almost total bans or six week limits and so on, which is quite extreme by the standards of the American voter, um, it it redounds totally to the benefit of the the Democrats because it's the Republicans who seem extreme and to have commitments that are way outside the boundaries of what most people want. But it's also the case that if you sort of dig down into what the shadow party of the Democrats really wants, um, clearly what they want is unrestricted abortion, basically available at any time for any reason throughout pregnancy. That and is the House good. voted, right? Remember and the that? House voted basically in favor of that. So but most people aren't aware of that and they won't be aware of it until the Republicans sort of managed to neutralize the issue somewhat, and they're already trying to do so. But um, uh, the shadow party, if in fact their position does come into focus, it will be yet another problem for the Democrats along these lines, because people it's very clear from the the data, the median voter in the United States is would be perfectly happy with like Listen. 15 or 20 minute, uh, 15 or 20 months limit on abortion with exceptions thereafter.
1: Right. Well, what about on Israel and Gaza? I mean, I know that's all reignited after your book was <laughs>
0: uh-huh. now
1: you're, pretty much after you. But well, after your book was written, certainly, uh, is there a shadow party element there in terms of where the shadow party might view this conflict and related issues that that kind of go to. Uh, whether it's Islamophobia or anti-Semitism uh, issues we see now on college campuses, with respect to those um, those problems, uh, is there a difference there? You know, in terms of the shadow party mindset and where they would like to go, and broadly speaking, uh, Democratic voters. Yeah,
2: this is this could take us uh, for the, the rest of the try, 45 try, Yeah, minutes. we'll try, try to keep and, it... I wouldn't necessarily... Well, uh, uh, well
1: we, yeah, well, we're talking, mm-hmm. I should make clear, you know, on uh, November the 6th, uh, 2023, where this issue is kind of dominating global headlines.
2: Yeah, well, look, I mean, the it used to be that the Democrats and liberal Democrats were the leaders in the, so, quote, pro-Israel movement. I mean, the... The head of the Democrat of APAC, who really saw it to its uh, uh, strength, was a former Kennedy staffer, uh, Ted Kennedy staffer. So it used to be the Democratic issue, and it used to be in that case it was re- really Israel, right or wrong. That's completely changed in the last ten or fifteen years. I mean, the board of APAC is mostly Republicans, not Democrats now, and um, the most militant supporters of Israel are, you'll find in the Republican uh, coalition. Democrats more split, older Democrats um, less inclined to criticize Israel, younger Democrats uh, more inclined. In this case, what you have is a small subset of younger Democrats uh, who have a, uh, again, extreme views on Israel, Palestine that are similar to those we talk about in the book and, on immigration or climate change and race, where they really are um, some of them applauding what ha- Hamas did, but at the least uh, not ignoring or discounting that uh, while calling uh, on the uh, on the Israelis to uh, to, to uh, accommodate. Uh, the Palestinians. So, I mean, on the one hand, I agree with a lot of the things, the ceasefire and stuff like that. But the but the not recognizing the kind of atrocities that uh, Hamas performed is very characteristic of this. Uh, again, this pretty small uh, subset that's making a lot of noise. And it's being, yeah, I mean, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. That's... Okay,
0: well, it's, you know, as John's pointing out, it's clearly highly contested within the Democratic Party, but I do think the connection of the shadow party is, is kind of important, because uh, if you look at at least the activist groups and a lot of the nonprofits and so on, you do see this melding of issues around race, immigration, uh, climate, and even Palestine, right, Sort of sort of put together into one blob of left positions that must be held by all the the people who are right thinking and are on the right side of history. And we've seen free Palestine stuff creep into a lot of these organizations. One of my favorite recent photos is a picture of Greta Thunberg and some of her supporters, you know, her activist friends holding up signs both about climate justice and about free Palestine so that the things have become uh, kind of pushed together in the minds of a lot of these activists who do loom large in the shadow party. And a lot of organizations that are part of that shadow party becoming increasingly leaning in that direction. Uh, and I think that pushes them to take some stances in the context of the current conflict that are, you know, highly questionable and 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 uh yeah, you know.
1: Well, we see, you know, I mean, a connection was made explicit. You mentioned Ta-Nehisi Coates in your chapter on race and his uh, Great
0: example,
1: uh, iconic uh, article about you know reparations and so forth. Is his 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 book that that went deeper into all of that. So he was recently in in Palestine. I just caught kind of a snippet of this, and he was on the West Bank, and he said the first thing that came immediately to his mind was the conditions of the uh, Palestinians in the West Bank, in analogy to the conditions of uh, black people in you know, segregated America, essentially. I mean, that was, you know, that was his construct. So it seems like, you know, the kind of identity that you're talking about uh, among these issues is really quite
2: strongly felt. Yeah, although I agree with that. <laughs> On Coates, with that particular, I think there are analogies, both with uh, um, Jim Crow America and with South Africa, uh, if you look at the conditions. Yeah. I, again, a, you're talking. are asking us about the politics on the actual issues. Uh, again, I would. I really liked what Obama had to say about it, uh, which is being a widely, you know, condemned. Uh, but n- nobody has clean hands. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, as you say, we could we could dedicate probably do the rest of the the podcast on it. So let's let's not. Although. I'll come back a little bit later with a more of a conclusory type question I have about the shadow party, but let's get back to the the, sort of the core theme, Uh, where have the Democrats gone, which is uh, the answer to that is, has a lot to do with the defection of the white working class voter. And you you sketch that out in ways that, you know, I I think I don't see how people can really challenge it. They can discuss the, the why of it, but the facts and evidence certainly seem clear. So I'm looking at today's New York Times, the print edition. I'm an old fashioned guy. I like to wake up to my New York Times. And it's always significant what the editors decide is the most important story. And today it was voters in five battlegrounds favor Trump over Biden. Presidential preferences will be for you, Roy. Uh, In Nevada, the presidential preference in swing states. As of today, it's a snapshot. We know all that. Nevada, plus 10, Trump. Georgia plus six Trump, Arizona plus five Trump, Michigan plus five Trump, Pennsylvania plus four Trump, Wisconsin plus two Biden. And I read somewhere that it, this could come down to like 300 electoral votes for the president, uh, ex president Trump, or the election held today. So he's got a kind of comfortable margin. Now, the twist here, and I'll, I'll let you talk, but it, it struck me, uh, the twist here, reading deeper into this, was it's, it's also showing a kind of bleeding away from Biden among uh, Black voters and Hispanic voters. So, and young uh, voters. Young voters. So this this yeah. make, maybe makes it a little, you know, there's some t- twists here. But how does that polling snapshot fit into your core, you know, uh, uh, concept in the book?
0: Well, in the book, I mean, we, we do go into some detail talking about, obviously, the evolution of the white working class away from the Democratic Party and the reasons for that. But we also then follow on by talking about this, the way in which Democrats are starting to lose the loyalties of non-white, particularly Hispanic working class voters, and how that's manifested itself in recent elections. And so we're very much seeing this in this latest spate of polls for The New York Times. Um, if you look at the margins, for example, the Democrats have among Hispanics in the states where they break it out, you know, they're, they're, they're sometimes even tied or if the margins, the margins they get are like in the single digits or maybe 10 points, that's terrible for Democrats. Uh, if you look at, you know, one thing I I like to do, uh, when they provide the breaks is look at the difference between non-college or working class voters and college educated voters as a whole. And we're now seeing this over and over again. There's a complete inversion of the Democrats' performance among these two groups. Among, you know, working class voters, they'll be down like 20 points or 15 points. Among college educated voters, they'll be up 15 or 20 points. This is really remarkable and and really, in a sense, defines where American politics is today and what the party's respective bases are. and as john was mentioning also i mean probably the latest version of demographics is destiny since the non-white thing seems to be going south of the democrats and there's some awareness of it is like oh the young people will save us these rising generations uh, gen z the millennials whatever comes after them you know sort of the cohorts of new generations which are more liberal will push aside the oldsters and everything will be great well that assumes of course that uh, young voters, uh, younger generation voters are sort of impervious to the appeal of Republicans and will stay with the Democrats at exactly the same margins that they have had previously. And what these polls show is that's kind of a dicey assumption. The the margins Democrats have among young voters in a lot of these states are, are terrible. Um, and in fact, some, they're not even positive margins, they're negative margins where they're actually losing the vote. So uh, this, I think, just all underscores You know, from our perspective, the way Democrats have assumed that these rising groups uh, and particularly working class members of these rising groups would stick with them no matter what, uh, despite how the Democrats have become identified with, you know, things that I think a lot of these voters aren't enthusiastic about.
1: I mean, are the young voters uh, apathetic? Are they is it is it just that? They're just well, not as me, interested uh, in the anti the whole like tr- Trump is about to destroy, you know, the the foundations of uh, American democracy. Well, clearly, they, they're
0: not as moved by that as Democrats hope they will be. Instead, they seem to be affected by the economy, how their lives are going under Biden as opposed to under Trump, their general sense of social disorder and uh, things not going in the right direction. They're very, you know, sort of a responsive to these things, the prices of homes, the prices of cars. Uh, you know democrats i think have assumed that you know gosh i mean we're for abortion rights and the other side's trying to destroy democracy of course all these groovy young people will be for us but they live in the real world and you know the appeal of democrats and along these a lot of these lines is is very suspect for them and, and they're willing to look in other directions
1: well that would be john i'll let you get in a second but i just want to add that would be an example in my mind of how there, there are real consequences to the shadow party sort of, you know, misunderstanding, uh, in in a kind of deep way of of
2: important segments of the of the electorate. I, I think that there's another element to it that um, I I've been trying to figure work out myself, and um, it, it goes back to uh, Weber the idea of charisma among leaders uh uh freud group psychology and the uh, analysis here he goes. The, uh, <laughs> oh, just shut your yap <laughs> all <of> the, <laughs> um, the uh the did you know the, max favorite no? <laughs> the uh n- nation again as an extension psychologically of the family the ruler uh, as a president as a father our special constitution which get which bestows upon the president some of the role of uh king as well as prime minister or you, you know if you don't touchy about it qu- queen and prime minister yeah yeah so that uh there is a kind of expect psychological expectation of the uh of the president is either good father or bad father a uh, tr- uh trump in night in 2020 very much the bad father Biden simply not living up to that role, especially among the young. And that's a respect in which his it's not just his age, because Trump is, you know, what, 78? I mean, it's the same. 77, age, but, I believe. Yeah. But he he doesn't he lacks dynamism. He lacks. He uh, uh, he he's uh, he's not even the grandfather. He's the grandfather who you, who you sort of put up at the table because he's kind of weird. He doesn't talk right. And I, yeah, I we that we, we don't real, we know we know. I think that's an underrated element, especially among young voters, of their uh, of their disenchantment with um, Biden. I don't know whether it's going to carry out to other Democratic candidates. Also, I think black males and Hispanic males, again, looking at the comparison of Biden and Trump, I think that that's a, I think that that's, again, a, a, a an underlying factor. So yeah. that's my, well, besides I don't, the economy, besides. Yeah. The-
0: well, it, it, right. I think the question of leadership does loom large and whether one puts it in a good father, bad father uh, context. I mean, if you're a young person, who do you want leading you into the future? uh i don't think biden quite fills the bill
2: yeah but and the question will be whether the the election if trump is the nominee will be fought over uh you know the bad father or the good father to put it i mean whether if it's if it's again like 2020 then the democrats will eke it out again i think
1: yeah well there's also
2: you know if it's over biden i mean we're you know the democrats are in big trouble right well just bar the
1: door just a note. I mean, we may have this complicating factor of you know of independent or third party candidates. With uh, <clears throat> uh,
2: that doesn't help either, because I mean, again, I think that's key to to Robert the uh, Kennedy Jr.'s appeal among young voters. Dynamic young Kennedy. I mean, I don't give a damn about the vaccine stuff uh, or the fact that he's a kook. You know, it's again, I think that's part of his attraction. Right. Yeah, well, we'll see if he can get on the ballots as well. Yeah, let's hope not.
1: One point with the, the Hispanic voter that comes out in the book is on the issue of immigration. Uh, they do see seem to see things in terms of uh, authorized legal immigration and illegal immigration. And that also seems to surprise a lot of, of people in this sort of shadow party they don't quite seem to understand, and I often hear that just just on my sort of Facebook page, which is mostly about current events, I, I often hear people say, you know, Trump his only source of appeal is is to this kind of white nationalist kind of base. So they they don't even seem to ad- admit into the discussion that on an issue in, on immigration in, in in particular, it's not really not that simple.
0: Yeah, I mean, to put it in uh, somewhat impolitely, this is just complete baloney. And anyone who paid a little attention to the data or ever listened to what actually Hispanic voters had to say would know this isn't true. One of the um, big mistakes the Democrats made uh, relative to the Hispanic population is during the teens, they basically, well, it predates that to some extent, but really sort of honed in on this idea uh, Hispanics are people of color. They are concerned about the fact they're non whites in a white society. And they absolutely are, you know, sort of 100% committed to basically easy immigration. Immigration is a key policy for them. That's what they care about. So we must be four square for liberalized immigration and send the message that, you know, it's like everybody should, people should be able to come to the United States if they want. And we should basically try to legalize the people who are here. And we shouldn't worry too much about border security because that's draconian and mean. Um, and this does not go down well with actual Hispanics who actually vote. I was listening to a focus group of swing Hispanic voters the other day on a podcast. And it was really remarkable what a lot of these voters were saying. It's like, I don't understand why these people are, you know, we're letting these people in. If you're going to come here, you you should do it the right way you know there i go to i go into new york city i live in the suburbs and th- the migrants are all over the place and, and this is terrible this is like disorderly and you know this puts a burden on resources and they were you know they sounded like trump voters and maybe some of them will become trump voters in this coming election but the idea that hispanics are committed to the immigration regime the biden administration has either you know sort of intentionally unintentionally implemented is just Incorrect, and then we have twin to that the role of immigration overall as a an issue that that drives Trumpian populism. I mean, uh, because of this commitment to not caring that much about border security, not trying to fix a broken asylum system, uh, and so on and so forth, it it's hands an issue to the Trumpian populace that has huge appeal, obviously as we we're just discussing among Hispanics, but also among the broad working class and other populations in the United States for whom the idea that borders should be quasi open is 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 like anathema so th- this is this is bad in so many ways it's bad for uh, the democrats among voters as a whole it's bad for democrats among hispanic voters in particular um and it's it's going to be a real problem i think going into this next election
1: i mean not to be a, a minor but do, i mean do you think that joe biden and his sort of heart of hearts you know, the guy from Scranton, you know, gets that?
0: I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm i always willing to grant the idea Joe Biden has better instincts than mo- a lot of the people who advise him. And he is does come from a different political and cultural milieu. But uh, once you've said and done things long enough and you're surrounded by people who all say the same thing uh, and your staffers all lean in a certain direction and you're, you're kind of guy like Joe Biden is, who's very sensitive to the currents that are blowing through the party and is is not really a profile in courage. I think after a while you start to believe <laughs> what you're saying or what you're not saying. I guess uh, in fact our the immigration same thing. Pro- yeah. our immigration policy is great. uh You know, we can't possibly move in a direction of being uh, more strict at the border because that would be cruel and inhumane. I mean, look at his position on trans issues. how it's evolved. Yeah. We're going to get years to that. ago. Biden yeah. would have nothing to say about trans yeah. issues. and right. now it's the civil rights issue of our time. So yes. whether his instincts are better than a staff yeah. granted, but I think over time he's, he's absorbed a lot of this. Yeah.
1: Well, actually let's just pivot to something we haven't talked about, which is this chapter called sexual, uh, creationism, which I believe, uh, John Judas is responsible for, as a matter of. Oh, you're going to get uh, me uh, canceled now. I want to. Well, let's see if we can. Uh, not oh, on this. It was all ruined. But- <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. Yeah, not on this podcast. <laughs> but uh, what the hell are you talking about? I mean, what? Where does that come from?
2: Well, it's a uh, it's a play upon uh, the uh, denial of the uh, theory of evolution. By fundamentalists, and the cre- and the creation of a theory of evolution um, called creationism that's basically just kooky science. And and again, our view not of the rights of transgender people to be free from discrimination, but of the transgender ideology, pregnant people, uh, you know, somebody who identifies. Who, a who a man a man who identifies as a as a woman is a woman period and and you know, should have all the rights, including playing in competitive sports and what have you. That reflects again a gender ideology, and the ideology itself is like creationism. It runs counter to biology. It runs counter to the theory of ev- ev- evolution, and it's just it's a kooky. But it dominates again a certain strain of of, of politics mm-hmm. within this shadow yeah.
1: party. Well let me push I mean, a little no. bit against Kuki, though, because you know, in your other chapters, you're again this sort of Neo-Puritanism theme, this, you know, I mean, is it is it I mean, is there some deeper well from which this can be drawn that connects uh to that idea about the the sort of religious or quasi-religious element. Oh,
2: you love that stuff. I know. I (laughs) do.
1: I think it's very interesting. And I'll just say to everyone listening, John and I sometimes disagree about this. I'm an absolute huge believer in the idea that a religious disposition runs deeply into humankind. And if it's not expressed in a kind of organized religion or conventional religion way, it comes out in other forms. I mean, I think climate change, is, is environmentalism in, in a radical way is, is the most obvious example of that. But uh, I think it came out in other forms as well. I was just really finding myself a, a little bit, so scratching my head a little bit about you know, the sexual creationism in what you just described. I mean, you know, let's just be honest here, I'm I'm 66 years old, I grew up, you know, in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, There was plenty of, you know, sort of homophobia, there was all kinds of stuff. I never even, I don't know what the term transgender, I didn't know what that term meant, probably even when I went to to college in the mid 70s. So, you know, I'm at somewhat loose ends and attempting to understand this stuff.
2: Uh, it's it, I, I don't have the, the uh, analysis yet of that. I mean, the connections. Okay, but, well, uh, what I what I Again, what I'd point out to you is the uh, the studies of, of Generation Z that psychologists, Gene Twenge, uh, Jonathan Haidt, and people like that have conducted showing this uh, just rash of, of uh, mental illness within, uh, among teens and young people uh, the, in the last 10, uh, starting about 2012. They attribute a lot of it to smartphones, but leave, leaving that aside uh, and leaving aside what mental illness itself, I think that there is this kind of frenzied uh, quest for uh, identity among young people Uh, And, you know, if you look at the transgender issue now, uh, the single biggest group that is seeking to change their sexual identity are are teenage girls. And they're not kids who, you know, when they were four years old, decided that they were there different sex, and it's almost invariably, and this is, I'm relying on the European studies, accompanied by some kind of autism, depression, uh, some kind of mental problem. So there is this really strange phenomenon going on among young people uh, that uh, to some extent, I think is really being exploited by some of the lobbies and some of the professional trade associations. into a politics, into an ideological uh, politics, but that should be a concern to us. I mean, it's just I don't think the the solution to that is uh, to find new surgical forms of uh, changing sexes among minors. That's not the. I think that you know therapy is a much better direction.
0: Yeah, I mean, back to the shadow party. I mean, nothing has taken over the shadow party of the Democrats faster than trans issues. Uh, You look 10 years ago and you look today. I mean, it's uniform across nonprofit organizations, advocacy groups, activists, academics. I mean, you name it. They're all 100 percent with sort of the trans program. And I would very much distinguish between what we might properly call trans rights, which is to not be discriminated against in employment and what have you. Uh, and what what has become trans rights, which has become collapsed or melded together with a whole variety of things that have nothing to do with rights, like your acceptance of, of trans ideology, um, trans women are women. Uh, sex is a matter of identification. Biological sex is a spectrum. You're you're a, you're whatever you you identify with and critically that kids who say they're a different sex than their biological sex should, without many questions asked, be moved into uh, medical treatment, puberty blockers, hormones, eventually surgery. This is a massive, massive move, this so-called gender affirming care, which has nothing to do with rights. This is a policy issue. I mean, is this a good way to treat kids? Does this work? Um, why are we doing this? And in European countries, increasingly we've seen people pulling back from this. And there's a fantastic article on the free press by this Finnish psychiatrist who was the one who basically uh, started the gender clinic in Finland, and how you know things evolved over time as they looked at the data, uh, and they saw what was going on. And they basically, after a certain point, just not exactly stopped doing it, but they, they basically moved it into being an experimental treatment that, you know, our outcomes are not clear. We should be very careful about how we do this, which is the exact opposite of what we have in the United States, where the leading medical organizations, which are really trade associations, not scientific bodies, have all endorsed the so-called gender affirming care as the Biden administration has. So this is really quite amazing. Um, and it does, you know, sort of this very strange, you know, quick development of both the shadow party and the the sort of official positions of the Democrats on this issue.
1: Yeah. Well, just as an example of how this is playing out sort of in the here and now and in in our politics, a headline in today's Wall Street Journal on page three, LGBT Issues Galvanize Democrats School Board Push. Uh, And it's from Plumstead Township, Pennsylvania. It's Bucks County, right? Yeah. Well, at stake is the control of the central Bucks School District, Pennsylvania's third largest with more than 17,000 students. Uh, Candidates are at odds over a 2022 policy allowing parents to challenge school library books with sexual content, and one adopted this year barring teachers from advocating quote, any partisan political or social policy issue, including by displaying objects such as rainbow uh, gay pride uh, flags. Uh, And some of these books engage this, you know they're talking about titles like gender queer this book is gay. Both titles were moved by the district after being challenged under this policy and we have a Democratic candidate saying that I've been locking knocking on a lot of doors, talking a lot of people and potential voters are like, yeah, my eight-year-old son went by and got the mail and they you know saw this kind of stuff. So you know here we are in a, in, a, in the heart of a battleground state. Where the Wall Street Journal thinks it's you know this is important enough to put it on uh, you know page uh, A three of the front section, so they everyone seems to think there's something you know playing out here.
2: Uh, it's nuts on both sides. I I I would think. I mean, I'm I'm not. I mean, I you know, on the one hand, right wingers wanting to uh, get the books out of the libraries. That's that's uh, again, that's just book banning. We know about that stuff, and it's uh, applies to both books about race and books about uh, homosexuality and what whatever.
0: But wait a minute. On Do you think hand... gender queer should be in school libraries, like you know your kids' elementary school library? I mean, there are there are limits. I mean, there's curation of books that go into libraries. Right. So why is it a bad idea not to put gender queer? Well, sometimes it's libraries. public libraries they're talking
2: about. They're not. Well, that's a different issue. About school school libraries. That's a different issue. Yeah. I yeah. mean, again, I guess I'd say that, uh, again, if teachers are going to teach that to kids, if they're going to read those things, then it becomes more of an issue, especially if they're promulgating a certain, uh, ideology, then, it, then I think it's an issue, but that's, a again, I don't think that's solved just by banning one, one way or another.
1: Right. Well, I guess the question in my mind is, and this relates to a, a larger question is how do these, you know, how does the shadow party kind of resolve itself? I mean, does a vanguard essentially become, you know, the reigning, uh, power, you know, how do shadow parties, uh, it, it, you, it, you know, it, this it, is anyway, the, how do they <laughs> end? I mean, where do we see uh-huh. a, a termination? And your book, you know, it it does obviously. This book seems to me like it's it's written for for readers who who you want them to to and maybe particularly democratic readers. You want them to to grasp this issue. You want to shed light on this issue. But as far as a fix is is concerned, I mean, does history sort of fix this question of you know vanguards and how far they can go?
2: Um, It's very hard. And let's say that Biden didn't take a uh, his uh, uh, view of uh, transgender rights as the great civil rights issue of the era. Now, Reagan probably was very scared. I mean, Reagan, Ronald Reagan was the first governor to uh, sign something allowing abortion rights in America when he was in California. But he gets to be comes into office and uh, moral majority is one of his big backers. And he puts uh, somebody as an assistant secretary uh, or a deputy assistant secretary who's from the religious right. And you never hear about the person, except, you know, among a few uh, uh, publications that either praise the person or condemn the person. (laughs) biden puts rachel franklin as a what is it assistant secretary of education or nobody or health? no she's a health and human I service thought it was levine but anyway yeah. whatever yeah yeah i'm not i'm not sorry sure. and and but it, you have now you have the internet you have social media and becomes a major issue and becomes identified with the party and so it's very hard to break that uh, identification i mean one of what one of the complaints about criticisms of our book is, well, you know, if the Democrats repudiate all these ideas, then are they going to lose all these uh, people? And uh, basically, I think, you know, where we have there has to be a time and a reckoning. Uh, and it usually comes when a party gets drubbed at the polls Um where people realize that these have to be secondary issues and that the party itself has to be defined and defined clearly on issues of class, the common man and woman, and can't uh, be identified clearly with all these uh, you know extreme positions on social issues. But we're yeah. not there yet by any means.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, put another way, um, I think you can make the case right now that in fact, you know, as I've argued, the progressive left uh, is kind of a paper tiger. There's a whole series of positions that Democrats are told they have to hold, otherwise the base of the party will defect and they'll lose more voters than they'll gain. I think that's a highly questionable assertion. And I've, I actually don't believe it. And I've, I've made arguments empirically based to that effect. But I think John is right that you know, just because that's a you know, good analysis right now and you can make a very strong case for it doesn't mean the party can move in that direction very decisively at the current time, precisely because it is so dominated by the shadow party, precisely because they haven't yet got their ass kicked because of this. So um, you do need a shock to the system probably to to loosen the hold of the shadow party and its priorities on on the Democrats and that. You know, we we don't venture any predictions in the book about how and why that'll happen, but I think that's probably what does need to happen. Um, you know, how how exactly to fix the Democrats in a very concrete way is is above our pay grade, uh, <laughs> and we're just trying to point yeah. out what's what's going on. Yeah.
1: Well, okay. And as I think we can move to wrap up, I mean, there is an element here we haven't addressed, which is you have your clearly have as, as sympathies as as kind of labor. Democrats if I can say that and recently we did see United States president Joe Biden uh walk a a picket line uh with the uh the auto workers data auto workers and that was a significant event I don't know that presidents have done that before uh and we also saw you know uh through this collective bargaining that the UAW got a meaningful uh, pay raises and a and a good package um Does that seem like the kind of thing that that, you know, can can build up uh, more of a kind of muscular appeal to the voters that uh, have been defecting from the Democratic Party?
2: Um, Labor movement was crucial to the Democrats and was crucial to their uh, appeal to uh, the again, the common man and woman or forgotten American. And uh, it could be Uh, crucial again, but they have a long way to go. I mean, the organizing in the service sector is really blocked by the kind of labor law that, uh, that we have, um, you see that happening with Starbucks and Amazon. I mean, this—I don't think that well, any of those unions really have uh, uh, collect, bargain collectively that uh, won elections uh, for Starbucks because you can just hold these things up indefinitely. So, my, in my view, the Democrats are going to have to win a kind of closure-proof majority again, mm-hmm. and this time, unlike in nineteen ninety-three, in the Senate, two thousand nine, uh, they're going to have to uh, change our labor laws to make it easier uh, for unions to organize. In the absence of that, it's going to be very hard uh, to go beyond what the UIW was just completely commendable. But they, again, didn't increase their ranks. They did very well by the people who they had already organized. Right. Yeah, right.
0: I mean, if you look at it, I mean, I think that point is crucial about the cloture proof majority. I mean, basically, you're talking about what is the Democrats 60 Senate seat strategy? And if you start thinking about how the Democrats can possibly get 60 Senate seats, you very quickly run into the the question of how can the Democrats be competitive in a lot of the states where they currently that are, you know, purple, red, purple slash red uh, or even reddish uh, if they they continue on their current course or their current image and brand and and so on and the issues that they choose to prioritize. I mean it's not it doesn't really compute. so uh you know the in a way that's something that should lead the Democrats to want to decrease the influence of their shadow party and move to the center on some of these cultural issues and so on because if you really care about the labor movement, if you really care about that part of the Democrats' heritage and and sort of potential strength, then you really do have to take seriously the idea of winning Senate seats in states where the Democrats currently don't look very competitive. So um, that's I think uh, that should be a wake up call. But we'll see. I mean, maybe they still need that shock to the system that John's talking about.
1: Okay. Well, on that not entirely hopeful note, um, I want to thank uh, you, Roy and John. for being on this podcast and thank you, uh, everyone. Welcome. Uh, This has been America and Beyond with Paul Starobin.